0: Welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and at the other end of the phone is Caroline Kilburn. Hi, Mom. Hi. oh sunshine. Well, sunshine maybe where here. you are. Sunshine everywhere. <laughs> no, <if> it's, stor- <laughs> it's storming here. <laughs> I'm oh, in really? Texas. You're in oh. Iowa. And we'll find out where our guest is today. Who do we have today, Mom? Today we have Meg Eden.
1: Kouyat. Uh, Kouyat. Kouyat, yes. And um, the book is Good Different, and it, it's a wonderful read. It really, it really is. It, oh. Talk about page-turner. This is one for sure. So, um, And she is um, a neurodivergent author and college-level creative writing instructor. She is a 2020 Pitch Wars mentee, whatever that is, and the author of poetry books. And her poetry is wonderful. When she isn't writing, she's probably playing Fire Emblem. If she can be a Pokemon, she'd be, um, Sherry's art.
0: You find <laughs> her online.
1: <laughs> and uh, it, it's a wonderful, it's, it is a wonderful book because it's in poetry and, um, so it's a fast read, but it's full of wonderful things that we all need to know. And I want to tell you at the outset that P- Iowa PBS is, uh, this month, is up uh, is has the honor of acceptance month in a film screening of in a different key at their at their studio and um yeah then there were two documentaries on uh, on their on pbs iowa pbs and very interesting very interesting ones so i thought that was it. you know for
0: this just worked out perfectly right now <laughs> and welcome to writer's <laughs> voices meg
2: thank you so much for having me
0: so Tell us about, you know, what is Good Different about?
2: So, Good Different is about an autistic girl who wishes she was powerful like a dragon but learns to find her power through writing poems.
0: Is this at all autobiographical?
2: I would say it's an emotional autobiographical. <laughs> okay. Like, I, I feel like Sayla, I resonate with Sayla, but. Um, the things that happen are more inspired by things I see happening to autistic kids today, not simply things that literally
0: happened to me. So, um, in your bio, you're, you know, you, it says that you are neurodivergent, autistic, and anxiety disorder. Now, we have this connotation of someone who's autistic as, you know, like, and I, and not. Being able to have this conversation that we're having right now, can, can you explain a little bit about, um, what neurodivergence and autism spectrum, what the spectrum really is? Hmm.
2: So there's this fantastic article that talks about how the spectrum, when we talk about an autism spectrum, we talk about it more in a binary like a sliding scale we're like oh, oh you're more autistic or oh you're less autistic but really a spectrum when you think about a color spectrum it's like a wheel right there's lots of factors um it's not just more or less of a thing there's you know a whole rainbow of colors and there's different intensities to those colors and things so the autism spectrum similarly um every autistic person is different and so they're all going to have different strengths and different struggles different things that you know uh, maybe it proves more of a challenge. Maybe things that need a little bit more of um, support needs. Um, and so, yeah, we have this very limited perception when we talk about autism because the diagnostic criteria was really based off of white little boys. Um, and white little boys, they don't always have the same autistic uh, tendencies, but uh, generalized, they have. They can often present a certain way, and females and People that aren't female, like, they're going to have really different um, portrayals often. So, yeah, it's just, um, I'm, I'm excited that we can have this conversation um, with this book and be able to talk about just how um, autism can look so different for everyone.
0: Now, the character in um, Good Different, Sila is in, what's what grade is she in? Seventh grade? Eighth grade? Seventh grade. Seventh grade. Yeah. And she had never been diagnosed as autistic. And she comes to that conclusion almost on her own. And Mm -hmm. is this something, do you think, that is common for girls in particular to not be diagnosed? Yes. Uh,
2: Very, very, uh, way more common than um, you might expect. Um, And particularly my generation and older um, kind of generations, um, we're often called the lost generations because um, it just wasn't even remotely on the table. Many of us are coming to realize that as adults, but it's still happening um, with uh, especially girls. Um, but autism can present in different ways, obviously. And so there are some, uh, especially boys, tend to present their um, symptoms externally. They externalize. They get in trouble in school because they're causing a racket, right? Like that's general. That's as a very generalized portrait, but um, that's often happening with boys and girls. Often, not always, they tend to internalize, so they can be struggling with lots of things, and people have no idea um, because they aren't "quote unquote" acting out in the classroom and things like that. So, yes, a lot of girls um, can discover that they're autistic on their own and much older than we might expect.
0: What is I mean, everybody has some anxieties and some issues and stuff. So what is the, like, where do you, where's the dividing line or is there a dividing line? Or do we all have some aspects of this, of neurodivergence? So that's a great, yeah, that's a great question.
2: And I think um, there's still so much we're trying to learn and understand. Um, what we do know is neurodivergence, which includes things like autism and ADHD, it means that their brain is wired differently. So this we do see a significant difference between a neurotypical person and a neurodivergent person, but that difference can really vary. And what is seen from the surface, we might go, oh, you know, they seem just like us. How are they, you know, different Um so there's there's a range of what can be internalized. There can be a range of the difficulties that somebody's having to, with sensory issues, with communication, with social skills. Um, oh, there's a whole kind of uh, gamut of factors. Um, but and so in the way it's diagnosed, it's still really messy. We need to keep working on how that's done. But um, I mean, like I was formally diagnosed. And so there were certain aspects where it was like, this is um, affecting my life to a significant enough. Um, level that, you know, I received a formal diagnosis.
0: At what age, if you don't mind my asking?
2: Yeah, so it was actually just a few years ago. It was in uh, 2020, in the middle of COVID.
0: Wow. Yeah. So so you went your entire childhood sort of dealing with these things on your own.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and um, kind of having a sense, I know I'm different often that feels like a good thing, but sometimes it's not a good thing and I don't quite know what to do with that. Um, And like, is it just that I'm lazy? Is there something like wrong with my attitude? Um, But it really came to a head in college and early adulthood where um, all the ways that I was kind of surviving and putting up with things, all my coping mechanisms uh, proved to not be able to work in the long run. And then I had to kind of really come to terms and kind of figure out what is going on here and so that began my journey.
0: I can imagine that that was not an easy journey how to, how to <laughs> no. figure that out.
2: <laughs> yeah um, yeah and it, it was a messy one um, and it came in pieces like a lot of journeys I think um, where it started you know with me seeing a first representation of autism in media where I went oh my gosh that I resonate with that um, there's people like me Um, And that began this whole journey of learning about autism. And um, at the beginning, I didn't really even identify as autistic. I went, oh, I can understand how these people think. Maybe I can help them. And, you know, now it's like, maybe that's because you are one of them, Meg. Um, (laughs) But, you know, eventually I kind of came to that conclusion. Oh, maybe it's because
0: I am also autistic. But, yeah. You're listening to Writers Voices, and our guest today is Meg Eden Kuyat, author of Good Different. Now, Good Different is a book primarily for uh, middle readers, I would guess, so like the um, age of the character, and it's written in verse. And is this um, is this a fairly common genre for that age group? Ver- Novels in verse are becoming more and more
2: popular. Um, I first learned about them maybe in 2016, Laura Shovan has a wonderful middle grade novel and verse called um, The Last Fifth Grade Class of Emerson Elementary. And so I think that was the first time I saw that form. And, you know, people were kind of hinting that this would be a great form. But it, it, it's kind of exploding now in popularity. It seems like such a niche thing, but I keep seeing more and more of them on the shelves for middle grade.
0: Well, we had um, interviewed Helen ellen hopkins a couple of times and you know she has oh yeah yeah she's um, hers are a little bit older they're not really middle reader i think more young adult but um her -hmm. books like crank uh have certainly set the pace for um books in verse and then i think i think we did one quite a few years ago Jacqueline woodson i think did a. oh yeah yeah which was um wonderful um I'll have to look up the title of that one. So prior, is this the first time that you try, that you wrote a novel in verse? i You've written poetry books yeah. before. Yeah.
2: Right. Right. So, um, yeah, and it's funny, I should have, I'm so stubborn, but I should have tried it earlier because <laughs> in my poetry classes, I'd be told, you're too narrative. You should, I think my poetry professor one day had this aha moment, hum- he said, you're a novelist. You're a fiction writer. And I was like, Well, yeah, I write fiction too. Uh but then, you know, in fiction classes they go, This feels more like a poem. There's not really plot or whatever. So it's uh, like, I could not write the perfect hybrid of the things that I love and my strength.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Jacqueline Woodson, it was Brown Girl Dreaming, um, which yes. won a lot of awards, <laughs> National Book Awards and so forth. So um But I, you know, I'm trying to think back to, now this has been an awfully long time ago, but when I was that age, I don't remember that being a thing, you know, books and verse. But I think I would have loved them. Same. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So did you always want to be a writer? No. Um, I used to.
2: Hate reading. My mom had to pay me and bribe me to read books. <laughs> um, it paid off because then I fell in love with reading. But um, for the longest time, I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to be, you know, a mangaka or a cartoonist or um, telling stories through pictures. Um, but with time, I discovered that telling stories through words was something I enjoyed even more.
1: I was wondering if um, autism was very often misdiagnosed. In other words, uh, you know, there could be something else that was playing there. Is that, does that happen very often, do you think? Yeah.
2: Um, and especially females tend to be misdiagnosed with other things. So the sensory picky eating that can be, you know, an autism aspect. Um, picky eating is not really a great word for it, but, you know, it's often what we call it. Um, then they might be diagnosed with like an eating disorder. Um, There's strong emotional responses to sensory issues. They might be misdiagnosed as bipolar or something like that. So um there's a lot of misdiagnoses mm. that can happen. I mean, it's it, it, in part because there's just so much we're still learning about how brains work. And a lot of these categories, oh, yeah. there's a lot of overlap.
0: Yeah, it, sometimes it's hard for me to really think, Well, what makes one thing normal and another thing divergent because so many people are not normal.
2: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, and I don't have a great answer for that. Yeah, because I thought I was normal, well, you yeah. know, or I thought, you know, I was neurotypical, I guess. Um, yeah. I, I knew I wasn't normal, but I thought I was neurotypical. Um, And so I'm not a good person to ask about that because <laughs> I'm like, heck, if I know. Um, but yeah, it, it is messy, and it. but like in some ways it's a good messy. Like I think it's beautiful that we have all these different types of brains and these different ways we can contribute to the world.
1: Well, it's like everybody. Everybody in the world is a little bit different than the next person sitting next to them on the bench. I mean, right? You know, it's just like okay, doctors want to give medicine, the same medicine to ten people, and five of those people, Mm -hmm. it's not going to do any good because they're going to. It's not going to react for them, and doctors Mm -hmm. don't realize that yet. They're still working on it. Right. But that, you know, it's just it's just common sense, isn't it? that we're all a little bit different
2: yeah so i think we have these structures that um put this pressure on the sense that there is normal and there's not normal and even the language we have and use language that i'm still having to kind of like rework for myself because i grew up in a time where we used a lot of slurs about mental health um and to some degree we still use them in our culture and it just says so uh, there was something that um an author i know said that really stuck with me that um the language we use re- like especially um our slurs or our curses they reflect something about what we fear as a society and um i've been Kind of going back to that a lot with mental health because the way we talk, we still talk in a way that there is normal and there's abnormal. And I think it would do such a load of good if we tried to, you know, complexify that a little bit more and not just have those categories because I think it puts um, a lot of people into a fear of having to try to fit a normal mold that's just not sustainable and doesn't work for them.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think yes, the, the I word agree. choice of neurotypical and neurodivergent is, is an improvement. Um, yeah, because divergent is not necessarily better or worse. It's just different. Different. Yes. Exactly.
2: Yeah. I agree.
0: And like the title of your book, good different. It can be good different.
2: <laughs> right. Exactly.
0: <laughs> what are some of the issues that Sila is dealing with?
2: small. It's, you know, that she's in a new grade where things are a little different. There's new teachers, maybe uh, kind of people she has to get used to. It's a little uh, more full. This happened with my school, you know, where it was like more and more people were going into the small building that was not fit for that amount of people. So it's getting crowded. Uh, you know, her uniforms, she sensory issues with that and the heat in the classroom so it's a lot of little things building up and then she's got you know neighbors that move in so she goes to her safe spot at home and then that's not really even fully safe because now she's got um these neighbors that are loud and intruding into her safe place and so um Mm -hmm. she's had this kind of misbelief that i just need to push all that down put up with it and keep going because she thinks everyone just does that and at some point that blows up she can't do that anymore
0: and for her, it seems like, um, if the sensory issues, like the no- noise is a real problem. She needs to mm. be able to, she needs help in being able to block out noise. And, right.
2: Yeah. Or just a place to go away.
0: To yeah. Get that quiet. And also the, like the feel of, you say the uniform, the feel of the fabric on her skin. Um, it's, it's kind of interesting because my, son when who's now you know in his 40s but when he was a a boy he would not wear denim jeans Mm. because they were too stiff he didn't he -hmm. he would only wear corduroys because they were softer and as he got older like there was a (laughs) when he was Seela's age he had an entire collection of silk shirts which fortunately were popular, were trendy at that time for boys. But right. that that's what he wanted to wear every day with were these silk shirts. And he wouldn't sleep on regular sheets, only flannel. Mm. And he when I went to buy a new sofa, I let him choose the upholstery because otherwise mm. he wouldn't have he wouldn't be able to sit on it if it if it wasn't right for him <laughs> that was right <laughs> and i you know it's funny i i didn't think of this as being a, an issue or a problem it was just the way he was and we and so we i bought a sofa that had a real soft covering on it <laughs> right well and i i think
2: that's a great way to grow up in many ways like i grew up with my parents not really making a big deal and i had some things that you know uh, probably these days would have been big red flags um like with um language acquisition and things like that and mom was like i'm not worried i can tell she knows what she's doing and i'm so glad she wasn't worried because i think it actually would have at least for me probably made things worse but she just kind of rolled with it she knew that was how i was and my parents loved me the way i was and i thought that was great yeah but it varies for kids Yeah. yeah
1: yeah Yeah, you were you were fortunate. I'm sure that doesn't happen in some cases, but that was that was great.
0: You know, and flannel right. sheets right. and right. silk shirts are pretty easy accommodations to make. <laughs> right. But that was one of the things that you know, in good different. Uh, uh, eventually, Seela realizes and and has people who will fight for her to get the accommodation she needs, but. Initially, there's some people in her school who just aren't willing to be at all accommodating. Is that a common experience, do you think?
2: I unfortunately think it can be pretty common. Um, and it, it can be surprising. Like you say, Oh, some of these things are just really small things. Um, but people will say, that's weird. That's abnormal. No, we're not going to do that. You need to learn to put up with this or whatever it's you're being picky
0: um yeah yeah it was like she had figured out for herself some things that worked but then her teacher wouldn't let her use them yeah 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 it's just so sad i
1: was gonna say fortunately she had the one teacher that encouraged her with the poem and that was that was a Oh, yeah. With the savior. <laughs> yeah, that was she, great. She yeah.
0: had people on her side, too. Yeah,
2: absolutely.
0: So- Both are out
2: there. There's, you know, advocates and allies, and then there's people that, you know, maybe struggle to understand. And I think, frankly, often a lot of the people are well meaning. You know, there are, you know, mustache curling villains out there, but I think there's also just like a lot of well meaning people who maybe they grew up being given, being told, like, oh, you need to just put up with this. Um, and so they're passing uh-huh. that down. I think it's really messy.
0: Do you think that that people, that kids who maybe have sensory issues, that sometimes they do grow out of it? Hmm,
2: possibly. Um, or that maybe there's certain seasons where that's more um, putting a strain on their system. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I've, I've heard people saying things about growing it um for me it feels like it only um got stronger with age to be honest and i hear that from quite a few people it's like wow i'm noticing these things way more than when i was a kid um so that's interesting again i think there's a lot we're just still learning
0: about this right right well meg why don't you read a little bit from good different sure so i'll start
2: with the first poem Um, And that's called The First Time. The first time I broke down in front of anyone was in the middle of the evil place, Walmart. Mm -hmm. All the people and noise tricked inside my head like a hundred shirt tags. It was a Saturday and the aisles were crowded. People yelled. The overhead milk crackled. Some smell like sour milk spilled through the air and turned my stomach. And mom wanted me to decide on a new pair of jeans from the millions of racks. All of a sudden, the whole store, screaming kids and stiff AC air was folding in on me like two tight hugs from strangers. I ran, locked myself in one of the changing stalls. Mom banged on the door, but I balled up on the dirty tile floor and cried and hyperventilated till my head stopped spinning and my eyes dried enough for me to see. When I opened the door, Mom pulled me out of the store, ditching our groceries by a mannequin in reds, whites, and blues. Once we got in the van, she locked the doors. She let me cry. She opened the glove compartment and gave me a pack of cookies. I always keep some goodies aside for a bad day, she said. But when I calmed down, Mom said, a Godfrey, never... Ever cry in the middle of a store. Always hold it in until you make it back to the car. That became the first rule for my list on how to be a normal person. So something that Cela does is you probably get a sense from that poem is she puts pushes everything down, um, and she wears what she describes as her normal person mask. This poem is called My Normal Person Mask. I can be really good at pretending to be a normal person. This morning, I put on my normal person face. I tucked in my shirt. I said hi to the teachers who greeted me in the hall. I smiled and nodded at all the right parts as Gemma talked before class. I drew to keep myself distracted from all the rough noises and loud textures poking me. I got a break in Mrs. B's nice, quiet class and pretended i could hear what the girls in the loud said in the loud cafeteria at lunch i looked my teachers in the eye when they called on me i stuffed my feelings into my chest like used tissues when my chest got full and raced with panic i asked to go to the bathroom and locked myself in one of the stalls and studied the pattern on the cinder block bricks until i calmed down enough to go back pretending to be a normal person is tiring as soon as mom pulls into the driveway and I get inside, I change, take off my normal person's mask, put on my headphones, play my favorite pop song on repeat. I watch my favorite episode of Riders of recite along with the characters, laugh at all my favorite parts. I squeeze my stress ball, pluck the hairs that grow between my eyebrows, slap my hands, and don't care if it looks weird because no one is watching. And I have to recharge at least enough to do it again tomorrow. So, Sayla, she struggles in certain ways with her world, but she also has great joys. And one of her great joys is her special interest. And um, lots of autistic people have a special interest. And for Selah, that's, dragon. well, that, see, that's dragons. Well, mm. that's power. Dragons have power.
1: And she does. Yes. Oh, I love that you point that, that out. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Thank you. I love that. <laughs> um, and it, that's what's going to, I hope that will come across with um, this poem. Um Inside me, there are dragons. When people ask me what I want to do when I get older, I want to tell them I'll become a dragon or a draconologist. But I don't <laughs> tell them that. Obviously. I made the mistake of telling mom once, and she said I needed to get serious. Because becoming a dragon is not what adults call a viable career option. (laughs) Also, dragons don't exist, like that matters. Online, dragons are real and alive. There are 1,600,000,000 search results for dragons. There are elemental dragons, Pokemon dragons, Eastern dragons, Celtic dragons, cartoon dragons, how to train your dragon dragons. In How to Train Your Dragon, there are change wings, cauldrons, sand Wraiths, shock dogs, fastens, Flight mares, and the monstrous nightmare, a stoker-class dragon, just to name a few. But my favorite species, obviously, is the night fury. Obviously. 'Cause that's what Toothless is, and Toothless is the best character, obviously, because he's the main character and nice and powerful and one of the last of his kind, and all the dragon riders have their own dragons that are faithful companions who would fight to protect them and stick by their side no matter what. Even though mm-hmm. I have friends and act like it's fine, deep, deep down I really wish somewhere I could be fully me, where I could relax. And not feel like a freak, somewhere like Burke, where I could have someone fight by my side, like Toothless with his dragon rider hiccup. And now I'll just close with um, kind of on that note, I wanted to end on the joy that Selah discovers with her autism. uh, Because there are difficulties, but there's also great joy. And so this is uh, part of a poem towards the end. And what is that phone called? Uh, Things I learn Mm. online. Neurotypical. Neurologically typical. What I've always thought was normal. Neurodivergent. People with variation in their brains. People who might be different. People like me. Pop said, We're in a world not built for us, a neurotypical world. People like us are dragons with clip wings, but like Toothless with this prosthetic tail fin, we still find so many ways to fly.
0: And that was Meg Eden kuyat reading from Good Different. You, One of the poems, she talks about hand flapping. Can you yeah. um, explain like what, you know, is that a common trait of autism and why it helps?
2: Yeah, um, so it is common. Um, I didn't know that for a long time. I've been slapping since I was little, and my mom always thought it was the cutest thing. Um, I <laughs> it, 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 I want to know the science behind this because um, I was recently reading, somebody was saying that it's, um, it, it's self-regulatory things which makes sense because i flap when there is strong emotional presence so either like uh, for me um my mom will always say it when we put peter pan on i start flapping and i go Dee-dee-dee! like i didn't know how to say peter pan but i got so <laughs> excited and she was like it's like you were about to fly off with peter pan uh, so i flap because i was excited um but i'll also flap if i'm distressed um so let's say we're flying to japan and we have been in airports for 16 hours and we learn our flight is canceled um, and oh. I am exhausted. I might slap in the middle of the airport um, and have a nervous breakdown and then my husband, you know, has to go talk to the <laughs> folks to figure out what to do. Uh, but it is calming in some sort of way. It's somehow like, I don't know, I either feel like I'm flapping the bad feelings away, pushing them down, or I'm flapping up to fly. I can't explain it, but it's something that a lot of autistic kids do, and so it would be really interesting to know a little bit more about why why we yeah, do that. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, it would. But what about, like, rocking? I remember reading about mm. autistic kids, like, rocking back and forth, too.
2: Yes, it's a, it, it's a similar um, rationale behind it, I'm sure, of self-regulation, um it's soothing it's calming you're kind of um mm-hmm. you, you, you do it because you have some sort of sensory need either you got a lot that you got to let out or you know um most behaviors there's some sort of sensory like i need this sort of sensory thing and this is the way i'm asking for it or this is emotion that provides it but, i mean there are difficult people rock too we got rocking chairs so there's there's some sort of human oh out yeah, out yeah yeah, yeah. Right. Right. for that right. yeah <laughs> I'm you in know, my rocking so chair thinking... right
1: now. As we see. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it might bring, it might be bringing back happy memories of when you were rocked as a child, too. You know, mm, very God. true. Yeah. yeah. I've always liked rocking chairs.
0: Yeah. <laughs> the um, you know, you mentioned having seen a neurodivergent character and um that there are some on TV. Have you watched the extraordinary Attorney Wu? Oh,
2: yes, I love Wu. I mean, <laughs> it, 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 with an asterisk disclaimer that, you know, talk to every autistic person of different opinions, and um, she's, you know, in some ways that stereotype of the, prodigal genius autistic person and that makes people me- like me go like well what about us if we're not prodigies <laughs> like do we also have value I hope um but besides that you know like I really love the portrayal of Wu um I found her very relatable I love well actually there's a scene where I like cry every single time because I feel so deeply how Wu feels in that moment so um I personally love it
0: and she has something she's passionate about which is whales
2: yes yes so <laughs> and law.
0: Yes. Yeah. But it's funny because just like Seela doesn't feel like she can talk about dragons very much because people will think it's really weird. She, Wu, has as her rule, don't talk about whales unless somebody else brings it up. Right. <laughs> because right. otherwise well, she yes, would talk about whales all the time. <laughs>
2: Right, and she's explicitly taught that rule, which I think is interesting. Um, yes. like I think her dad explicitly says, you know, yeah, don't do this. And um, and Sayla, it's, it's interesting because she also has rules, but um, they aren't necessarily ones that she was explicitly taught. Um, and that's a whole like just that that interests me. That interests me of like where do we get our rules? Like sometimes we are explicitly taught, and sometimes um, they're implied. And sometimes we kind of, like, misinterpret them from our environment. Um, So anyway, that's just something. Right.
0: (laughs) Sila has some rules that turn out to not be very good rules. Right. Not helpful. And she, that's part of the book, is she learns to change those rules to ones that do work. And one of them is that sometimes you do need to communicate how you're feeling. To somebody else rather right. than hiding it
2: <laughs> right
0: you're listening to Writers Voices and our guest today is Meg Eden Kuyat, author of Good Different so tell us a little bit about Pitch Wars yes um, it's so sad because it's no
2: longer in existence but it was a mentorship program created by Brenda Drake who is an author um, and it was this opportunity where you would um, submit your work um, and a mentor would select somebody to mentor based on his submissions. You would edit with that mentor. And then at the end of the um, kind of program, there was this showcase where you would put the first page of your piece and agents could request material based on that. So it was a very, very helpful way to not only get, you know, feedback. Um, I had an incredible mentor, Eric Bell, who was a middle grade author. Um, and he just, he saw Sayla. He believed in the story. Um, and I am just so indebted to him for letting me be a part
0: of the program. And was it helpful in getting a publisher? <laughs> I had
2: been querying the story um, and the query trenches. They're called query trenches because it's just awful, so slow. So I had some people, you know, kind of going, oh, maybe. But then um, I had an outstanding response at Pitch Wars, which not everyone gets, um, but I was very, very grateful. I had a lot of interest. I ended up getting, I think, eight formal offers from agents. Um, and from there, um, my incredible agent, Lauren Steeler, she was able to just, you know, knock it out of the park. And we got a deal quite quickly after going on submissions.
0: And who is your publisher?
2: A Scholastic.
0: Oh, fantastic! Yeah, that's can't you can't do much better than that for middle reader, can you?
2: Oh no, you can't. Yeah, I'm so honored.
0: Yeah. And um, was "Good Different" always the title? No. <laughs> um,
2: it, Something I learned in this journey is that finding the right title is a whole thing because there's lots of people that have to, you know, approve a title. And you're trying to do a lot in the title, which I really didn't have as much appreciation for with this process because you're trying to, you know, grab that sort of thesis statement of the book. Um, You're trying to get it engaging. You're trying to model the genre. You're trying to do all this stuff. And we all went back and forth. We all had different title ideas. And it was just such a struggle. And I was at my wit's end. And I have to give a shout-out to fellow author Cassie McMillan, a YA author and a friend of mine, who suggested the title Good Different, and we all fell in love with it. And I can't imagine it having a different title now.
0: Because <laughs> uh, I okay. see on your website it was originally known as Sayla's Guide to Normal, which right. works, too. But, yeah, Good Different is great.
1: Well, right, I like the, the different more now. <laughs> yeah. What whatever happened to do, don't don't judge a book by its cover?
2: Oh <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> it's unfortunately not true. We all judge books by their cover. We got thousands of yeah. books to think of, so it is important that the yeah. the cover is really really important. <laughs> yeah, it is.
0: That's true. How long did you work on this book?
2: Um, to be honest, not long, and I say that because most of my books it feels like um they take months and years. This um the first draft came out in uh like a month and a half i think um and then had pretty short edit rounds so it um it all happened pretty fast and i suspect i won't get it as good <laughs> again <laughs> as <my> future book
0: <laughs> that yeah that is pretty that is short and um what happened to pitch wars why is it no longer in existence well, it was
2: an incredible volunteer effort. Um, and so I know Brenda Drake, I, I can't even imagine how much time she was spending on that and not able to, you know, write and edit. And they needed so many volunteers. And so I think, um, we're seeing now a lot of these mentorship programs are kind of, um, closing down, which is so sad. But, um, I understand because it was just that I can't even imagine the amount of work. It's a full time or more unpaid job. It's just, um, very hard to sustain so do these mentorship programs i think we have to figure out a different model that makes it accessible for folks but also uh, sustainable for those organizing it
0: Mm, that makes sense yeah now you have um also i saw on your website um another book for young adults post high school reality quest So is that also in verse?
2: That is not, um, but it does play with form. That is um, in the form of old text adventure games. Um, Before we had graphics on computers and you would, it would all be text-based. If you're in a village, there's a fishing pole and you know, you type in what you're going to do. So um, I'm clearly someone that enjoys playing with form to some degree with my writing.
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And is that was that book before did it come out before good different yes yeah and so who who was your publisher for that one
2: so that was um a small press it's um red rare bird book with the imprint uh california cold blood an incredible editor bob peterson um who's just uh, really amazing
0: and who is nerd girl-, girl books so nerd girl books is um i don't quite know what
2: to call it a collective um it's a way for women to support each other's books that are nerdy. Um, we'll often <laughs> table at conventions and we'll, um, uh, because it's scary when you're trying to hand sell your own book. And, um, especially when I was with a small press and hand selling was really, really, um, important. Um, you know, you go to those and you're like bragging about your book and that can be really weird <laughs> and awkward. Mm. So we do this thing where we'd all share a table together and we'd all basically gush about each other's books. Um, and it's a great, uh, business strategy I gotta say because um the customer will hear you gushing about all these books and then they'll go oh I'm just gonna take them all I'm gonna take the whole bundle um and so everyone wins um and then it feels less scary selling your book so that's something I really do love doing
0: I think that's yeah. a great idea yeah because you're right it's hard to gush about I mean maybe it's not hard but gushing about somebody else's book is like more acceptable in some way <laughs>
1: once again, the same strength in numbers.
2: Yeah. Yes, yeah, so it's more compelling, too, I think, for the other side. You know, of course, you're going to mm-hmm. think your book is amazing, or at least to some degree, right? Like, you wrote it, you worked hard on it. But if you're gushing about someone else's book, like, that's contagious. So um, we've really enjoyed doing that. Right. So are you still yeah. doing that? Uh, to some degree. I do it much less now that I've got, you know, Scholastic, Thank you so much uh, for this book, and I'm just so indebted to them. Um, But I I do enjoy conventions there, as you probably see from the book, because that's a significant part of Sayla's journey is going to a convention. So I love being at conventions. So I do sometimes do it um, and, you know, um, have the Nerd Girl Books branch where we have a few authors. Um, It's fun, but it is a lot of work, too. So So, um,
0: is good different? being used in classrooms um that is definitely my hope
2: um we have i've heard some exciting possibilities that that may be happening in the future um but it just came out so there's still so much i don't know yet Mm -hmm. i've heard a lot of excitement from educators i'm really hoping it will be in classrooms how
0: would how would you envision it being used in a classroom
2: oh i love that question um I think there's a few ways. Uh, Because I'm a creative writing instructor, I'm most excited by, you know, using this as a launching point for kids to write their own poems. So, you know, you can obviously talk about neurodiversity and neurodivergence, and I think that that's really, really important with this book. Um, I think also that I can invite kids, you know, regardless of – how their brains are to, you know, write their own stories. And um, on my website, actually, if you are an educator and you want to use it in classrooms, I do have some writing prompts, some discussion questions, some ways that you can kind of use this as a launching pad in your classroom uh, for a range of things for creative writing or for talking about neurodivergence.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I was just thinking, you know, there's uh, there's so many different ways that, to approach things, but um, you, you have some really, really good ideas and and this is this is just great i mean cuz you know poetry is not everything doesn't have to rhyme see that's the that's the problem mm-hmm. cuz i was a teacher and when you say you know let's write a poem well i can't think of anything to rhyme with well it doesn't have to rhyme right <laughs> so this, <is> a, <laughs> this book is a good proof of that oh thank you well yeah
2: and that, um, as an educator that's so important to me to dismantle we have all these um weird preconceptions about what poetry is and I love when you can open that up like first that open for students and they can see poetry can be for me poetry can be a way that you know I can process the world around me I can reflect I can slow down I can discover like it is such a cool tool and I I hear so many kids in my classroom who go oh well you know I'm not smart enough to write poems I'm like what does smart have to do with it somehow we have set this message that you have to you know um, have yeah. all these complicated meanings, and it ha- it's like a puzzle, and it, it shouldn't be a puzzle. Like, I mean, I guess if you enjoy if you enjoy doing that, like, no shame. But um, I think poetry doesn't have
0: to be a puzzle. it can be you know whatever you want it to be. Yep, I agree Now, I I noticed too on your um website that you offer manuscript feedback. Yeah, you want to tell us a little bit yeah. about that.
2: Sure thing, yeah. So, um I especially love reading kids lit manuscripts but also, um, I have an MFA in poetry, so I'm very practiced with reading poetry manuscripts as well. Um and, you know, novels for adults. Um so yeah, I love reading, um, portions of work and full manuscripts and providing feedback and answering questions and kinda of talking through that process with writers. I try to keep my rights affordable and so if you see that you're interested and you don't feel like it's affordable. You can always talk to me and we can try and find something that's workable. But I think it's just so important to get feedback on your work. I think it's so important to have, you know, a critique group, but also to get feedback from folks in different places than you. So, you know, maybe if you need um, sensitivity or um, expert reads, you know, maybe you've got autistic characters and you want feedback on that. Or maybe, you know, you want to publish middle grade or young adult or poetry and, um you want to hear from somebody who's done that and be able to get feedback from the industry and things like that. I think just um, it, it's something I love doing and I think it's just so valuable and important. So it's something I really try to offer
0: whenever I can.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um. So you said when you were, that you didn't always want to be a writer, but you did start writing seriously fairly young, didn't you? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, in middle school, um, all my friends were on this poetry website posting poems, so I started doing that. um <laughs> all my friends were doing it um that's the best reason but um, and then, in eighth grade, I had a teacher that told me I was a good writer, and I remember feeling for. Perhaps the first time besides my mom, right? You know, writing something and feeling like somebody was really listening to what I was saying. Um, and then it was like zero to a hundred. At that point, I just somehow decided I'm going to be a writer. And then I went gung ho. And in high school, I was submitting to agents. I got my first agent. We were submitting, submitting to publishing houses. Um, I, if I like something, I take it very seriously.
0: <laughs> wow. So was it, what were you submitting then? Was it poetry or was it prose? So it's a manuscript,
2: um, that I've rewritten so that character is still beloved to me and I hope she finds a home. Um, but it was, it was, um, I labeled it as YA because, um, I think the categories were a little different and I was that age, so that made sense to me. Um, so it's funny, I was always told like, oh, the voice is maybe a little bit more middle grade, so I should have gotten this memo, like, I'm supposed to be a middle grade
0: writer. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> and so, so that's still something that you are working on then?
2: Yes, I love that character and I love her voice. Um, and that's what always brings me to story is the voice. A character will just be like, I got something to say and you better have a pen. And so that character, like, I just, I still love her. I still want her to find a home. So fingers crossed that, you know, she'll find her home one day.
0: Oh, wow. And, how did you get in, but getting an agent in 11th grade is kind of an unusual thing
2: it is though. So, you know <laughs> I, I meet other kids that do it you know um I, I, but yeah i mean, i just i went to the library they you know they had the, this was you know before you really submitted a bunch online um which is so weird to think about um but the library had the list of database of like all the um agents and you know i just sent queries And eventually someone said yes, and I don't know why they said yes, but I'm very grateful because um, my first agent, she really gave me that boost. She took me seriously, um, even though she knew I was in high school, and that meant the world to me. I think that's one of the things that helped me to keep going, was having a professional take me seriously as
0: a client. And so I assume when you went to college, you knew you were going to major in – did you major in creative writing or English? or? (laughs)
2: It's a funny thing. Ah. Um, But but I knew writing was important to me. Um, And so I I actually created my own major um, because categories couldn't define me, right? (laughs) Um, And writing was a critical part of that. Um, My thesis was a novel about an autistic girl. Um, And so that major was actually a lot of the discovery of me trying to learn about autism. Um, And that project was, um, I'm sure, a stepping stone. Uh, There was, like, an older version of pop in that and things like that. So it's funny. Funny how the writing process is.
0: What – when you're writing, do you have, like, a certain process? Do you – I mean, I'm picturing that possibly you have a very set routine for writing, but I could be wrong.
2: Um, yes and no. And it depends (laughs) – it it changes in seasons. You know, like right now, we're – you know, this book has just come out, and there's all this cool stuff happening, so um, I've kind of had to make a little bit more room for that and a little, like, my brain just can't really even fathom writing right now, which is an awful feeling, but it also makes me excited to go back to writing. Um, but what i found found helps me is every other day. So typically, like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I do my emails, I do my teaching, I do my tutoring, I do all that kind of stuff. Um, maybe housework and stuff too. And then Tuesday, Thursday, and the weekend, I really try to prioritize creativity. So I try to encourage myself to write. If writing just feels really hard, I'll do things like play video games, watch movies, go on walks, and those sounds like, um, you know, they're relaxing to some degree. It sounds like I'm just goofing off, but those things actually are really critical for thinking about problem solving and storytelling just from different angles. I think, you know, when playing this game, how are they telling the story? Um, How can I learn from that? What tools can, you know, I take for writing? And I found that that, um, there's that truism of like write every day and cool if that works for you. But I think sometimes that was shaming me of making me feel like, oh, I'm not a real writer because sometimes I'm tired. Sometimes I don't want to write. Sometimes I'm burning myself out. I burned myself out really bad. Um, In 2021, because COVID, all I did was just write. Um, And then I was like, I'm tired of writing. So uh, I found that every other day is much more sustainable for me, and it helps me keep going in the long run. Well, that's
0: that's a great idea, and I've never actually heard anyone express it like that. Oh, yeah. It's a very good uh, routine. So what kind of writing are you working on now?
2: So um, I'm working on more middle grade novels and verse. Um, I really love that that's something that I'm being encouraged to do. I thought that I would be told, you got you get one, and then you have to write in
0: prose. <laughs> and I've gotten kind of the
2: opposite message of we want more. So um, I'm really trying to embrace that and explore that. I've got several ideas that are really exciting to me, but they're all kind of like melded together. So I'm trying to figure out what's what. Um, Yeah, and I, I also work on young adults. I've got, you know, a young adult project I'm working on. I'm trying to step foot into picture books potentially. So I'm playing with that a little bit as mm. well. Just trying a little bit of everything.
0: So do you oh, do that. any of your own artwork?
2: Uh, no, Well, I-, I draw for fun. Yeah. <laughs> I really draw for fun. Um, my art cover for Post-School Reality Quest did have uh, a drawing, so I ended up liking our final cover a lot more. Um, but we'll see. You know, maybe there'll be other ways I can channel. Um, art in the future.
0: <laughs> I know it, people who aren't familiar with how the world of uh, children's writing works think that the, the writer and the they don't realize that the illustrator of a children's book is almost never the same person as the writer. It's very right. rare, very rare that it is. Now you're also I saw somewhere involved with the Society of Children's book writers, and illustrators. What's your role with them? So I
2: am actually just transitioning out of this role, but I was um, helping as a webinar coordinator for our region, um, setting up webinars, uh, which is a really fun uh, role because you're getting to pick, you know, who do I really want us to hear from? What do do I want to learn? And being able to really pick, like, my dream team of panelists and speakers and um
0: as diverse as possible and and so that was that was a really fun thing to get to do and i and then you also run a a blog for um it says accessible academic articles about video games (laughs) Which, (laughs) which seems like kind of a very unusual very what what who writes academic articles about video games and who reads them (laughs) yeah
2: this is a great question um it is a niche definitely um though it's it's weird it's a growing niche i think there's a lot more academia about this that's um bursting open with ludology and the study of gaming um which is exciting and it sounds like a really weird thing like why are we studying this but um it's really interesting and I got into that with um in the D C area there's an annual convention called Mad Fest, which is a music and gaming festival. And um they had a branch called Mages. Um and I guess they they still do to some degree. Um, and this was like kind of an academic angle. And so, you know, we're talking about, you know, what makes a game good, what makes good writing in games, um, why what psychology and the science behind gaming? How are we learning through games? Because, you know, especially as kids, but really as adults too, games are a place where we learn, where we're able, like books, to be able to test things, experiment, try um, in a safe environment where we can fail and it's, you know, not life or death, right? Um, And so that's interesting. What do we learn from games? What do games teach us? And a lot of modern games are doing some really interesting things with mechanics and mechanics are a way in games that they're I almost think of them as like um argumentative tools. The um the way that we can be in a game and we can be viscerally experiencing something that's so unique. Um in books, you know, we're reading it. Um and so we have some sort of emotional connection, but in the game we're literally in it and the choices we make and the things that we're experiencing and have a really meaningful, um, visceral impact on us. So I think it's a really interesting field of study, and I think it's one that gets my writing gears turning. I'm always thinking, like, how can I learn from what games are doing? So the the site is a branch off of Mages from Magfest, and so um, it's really not super active right now. We don't post a huge amount anymore, um, but. I I enjoy when we get really interesting articles to be able to post them and talk about things without it being a super academic
0: journal, you know? Oh, cool. Cool. Well, Meg, we're about out of time and it's been, um, a pleasure to talk to you today about good, different. Yeah. Thank
2: you so much for having me.
0: And Caroline, do you have some closing words for us? Well, there were so
1: there were so many interesting closing words in this book, but, This particular poem was, uh, she was talking with her mother about why she was a little different than somebody else. And, and so the last thing she said was, Mom, why do we have to care so much about normal? And why do we? Good question. Mm I mean, that was me. Why do we? Good question. (laughs) (laughs) I love that.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Meg Eden Cuyat, Caroline. And uh, see you all next week on Writer's Voices. Bye-bye.